Turn with me this morning to 2 Samuel chapter 21. 2 Samuel chapter 21. If you're looking in the Pew Bible in front of you, you should find it on page 347. Page 347. I know this may be difficult for some of you to believe, but occasionally our two boys uh, do something wrong. I know that pastor's kids are always perfect angels and never do anything wrong, but ours, I guess, are the exception. And uh, when, when Nixon gets in trouble, he will sometimes say, I'm sad. And our response when he says that is usually something along the lines of good. It's right to be sad when you do something wrong you should be sad because of what you did, not just because you get in trouble. And sometimes he's more sad because he got in trouble than because of what he did. And whenever I say that to Nixon, I, I sometimes imagine God looking at me and whispering, um, are you paying attention? You should be sad because of what you did, not just because you got in trouble. Because I, I'm a sinner too. We all are. And the fact that we all sin does not magically make it okay. So when we say we're all sinners, that shouldn't elicit this kind of collective shrug. Um, there's something we can learn from Nixon, that sin ought to make us sad. The book of Ecclesiastes puts it this way, sorrow is better than laughter. That's what Ecclesiastes 7 says, sorrow is better than laughter. Now, Ecclesiastes also says there is a time to weep and a time to laugh. And so the point is not that you should always be sad. The point is if you're never sad, it's a sign that you're not really living in reality. Because we live in a broken world and that brokenness is not just out there. We don't just see it in sin out there. We, we do, but we also see that brokenness here in our own hearts and minds and actions and feelings and words. Our passage this morning is filled with that brokenness and the sadness that comes from it. One of my tasks anytime we open a passage of Scripture is to try to communicate to you the truth that's being communicated here, but also the emotion, the feeling that this text is meant to elicit and so I just want to tell you right out of the gate that I, I believe the emotion and feeling that this passage is meant to elicit in us is sadness. And so I don't want us to kind of try to just rush past that. Um, Ecclesiastes says that the heart of the wise is in the house of mourning. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning. So there is wisdom to be found occasionally in sadness. And so let's try to see what we might learn from this sadness today as we read our text. 2 Samuel 21, we're going to begin in verse 1. Now there was a famine in the days of David for three years, year after year. And David sought the face of the Lord. And the Lord said, There is blood guilt on Saul and on his house because he put the Gibeonites to death. So the king called the Gibeonites and spoke to them. Now the Gibeonites were not of the people of Israel, but of the remnant of the Amorites. Although the people of Israel had sworn to spare them, Saul had sought to strike them down in his zeal for the people of Israel and Judah. And David said to the Gibeonites, What shall I do for you, and how shall I make atonement that you may bless the heritage of the Lord? The Gibeonites said to him, It is not a matter of silver or gold between us and Saul or his house, neither is it for us to put any man to death in Israel. And he said, What do you say that I shall do for you? They said to the king, 
the man who consumed us and planned to destroy us so that we should have no place in all the territory of Israel. Let seven of his sons be given to us so that we may hang them before the Lord at Gibeah of Saul, the chosen of the Lord. And the king said, I will give them. But the king spared Mephibosheth, the son of Saul's son, Jonathan, because of the oath of the Lord that was between them, between David and Jonathan, the son of Saul. The king took the two sons of Rizpah, the daughter of Ayah, whom she bore to Saul, Armoni and Mephibosheth. So that's a different Mephibosheth. And the five sons of Merab, the daughter of Saul, whom she bore to Adriel, the son of Barzillai, the Meholathite. And he gave them into the hands of the Gibeonites. And they hanged them on the mountain before the Lord, and the seven of them perished together. They were put to death in the first days of harvest at the beginning of barley harvest. Then Rizpah, the daughter of Ayah, took sackcloth and spread it for herself on the rock from the beginning of harvest until rain fell upon them from the heavens. She did not allow the birds of the air to come upon them by day or the beasts of the field by night. When David was told what Rizpah, the daughter of Ayah, the concubine of Saul, had done, David went and took the bones of Saul and the bones of his son Jonathan from the men of Jabesh-Gilead who had stolen them from the public square of Bethshan where the Philistines had hanged them on the day the Philistines killed Saul on Gilboa. And he brought up from there the bones of Saul and the bones of his son Jonathan and they gathered the bones of those who were hanged. They buried the bones of Saul and his son Jonathan in the land of Benjamin in Zelah in the tomb of Kish his father and they did all that the king commanded. And after that God responded to the plea for the land. Let's pause and pray together. Lord, we thank you for how you speak. God, how you reveal our sin and our guilt and the cost of atonement. Lord, I pray that you would help us today to be sobered by this passage that we hear. God, that we would, um, Lord, be instructed by this, that we would gain wisdom from it. God, that you might reveal your character to us and your grace and your mercy and holiness. So God, help us to see and to hear, and we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so these 14 verses, they tell a coherent story. They begin in verse 1 with this three-year famine. And by the end of verse 14, it says, After that, God responded to the plea for the land, meaning the famine ended. So that's, those are the brackets around the story. There's a three-year famine. By the end of verse 14, the famine ends. In between those brackets, David, the king, is figuring out why the famine was happening and what, if anything, he could do to stop it. The famine, we learn, was a result of God's judgment against certain sin and the cost of turning away God's judgment and turning God's ear back to the pleas of His people. That cost was very high. So the big idea for us this morning is this, that forgiveness is always costly. Forgiveness is always costly. Whether we're talking about God forgiving us or us forgiving one another, forgiveness is never simple or easy. Forgiveness is never a mental exercise of just moving on. It's always more than that. There are at least four ways that I want us to see here in these 14 verses the costliness of forgiveness. So the first way that we see the costliness of forgiveness is we see it in the mercy of revealed guilt. We see it in the mercy of revealed guilt. 
So in response to this three-year famine, verse 1 tells us that David sought the face of the Lord. We cannot underestimate how important it is that David sought the face of the Lord. Saul's instinct was often not to do that. Our instinct is often not to do that. Our instinct is sometimes to withdraw from God when we should be drawing near to Him. I'm always saddened when I see someone who is walking through some kind of trial and their instinct is to withdraw from God. They withdraw from Him, from listening to His Word, from being among His people. And so it is in the time and the season when we're most um, sorrowful and we're, when we're enduring the, the worst trial, that we need to press in. We need to be among God's people. We need to be putting ourselves in situations when we hear God's Word, when we're praying to Him, when, like David, we're seeking the face of the Lord. So that's what we see David doing, and God mercifully responds to him. At the end of verse 1, it says, And the Lord said... Now, regardless of what God's going to say, just think about... The beauty of that, David seeks the face of the Lord and the Lord speaks. The Lord responds to him. And what the Lord says to him is there is blood guilt on Saul and on his house because he put the Gibeonites to death. Now, if you are thinking, I feel like I missed something. Um, I don't remember anything about Saul putting any Gibeonites to death or, or maybe uh, there's something I forgot or, or there's something I missed. Maybe I wasn't here that Sunday you, you're, you haven't missed anything, okay? This is the first we have heard of this. So um, even if you knew detail by detail everything in First and Second Samuel, you haven't missed anything. This is the first we've heard of Saul putting any Gibeonites to death. But verse 2 does remind us about the history between Israel and the, the Gibeonites. Verse 2 says, So the king, that is David, called the Gibeonites and spoke to them. And now the author is going to give us some, some background. Now the Gibeonites were not of the people of Israel, but of the remnant of the Amorites. Although the people of Israel had sworn to spare them, Saul had sought to strike them down in his zeal for the people of Israel and Judah. So, so here's the background. The Gibeonites were non-Israelites who lived in the Promised Land. And in Joshua 9, when the people of Israel were entering the Promised Land for the first time, they began encountering these people who lived in the Promised Land. And one of the groups of people they encountered were the Gibeonites. And so in Joshua 9, Joshua, who was the leader of Israel at the time, uh, we're told that he made peace with the Gibeonites and made a covenant with them. And in, in Hebrew, anytime you see the phrase that they made a covenant, what that word literally is, is they cut a covenant. And so often what they would do is they would take an animal and they would literally cut it in half and the two parties would walk through it. And that was a symbol to both parties that if any one of us does not withhold this covenant that we're making, let us be as this animal is. So, so that covenant is punishable. Breaking it is punishable by death. So Joshua cuts a covenant with the, the Gibeonites, and the leaders of Israel, who are representing the entire nation, collectively swear an oath by the Lord not to harm them. This is the oath that Saul had broken. This is the oath that he had broken when we're told that he sought to strike them down in his zeal for the people of Israel and Judah. You don't even really need to know that background because God Himself says plainly in verse 1, there is blood guilt on Saul. 
So even if you didn't know any of that background, you know the Gibeonites were non-Israelites. Saul tried to strike them down, and because of that, he incurred blood guilt. Now, having heard that, what does David do? He, he begins to set out to make right what Saul had done wrong. As king, Saul's sinful actions brought judgment on the entire nation. What Saul did brought a famine that lasted for three years. Now that David is king, he takes responsibility. Remember, David is not the one who sinned by putting the Gibeonites to death. David has done many sins. Uh, Second Samuel has not tried to hide any of that from us. But here's one particular example of David could say, Listen, I didn't do this. This is not my problem. But he goes to the Gibeonites in verse 3 and he asks, What shall I do for you? How shall I make atonement that you may bless the heritage of the Lord? What can I do to fix this? What can I do to bring reconciliation and restoration here? So he doesn't say, this is Saul's problem, because Saul's dead. There's nothing Saul can do to fix this. It's on David. So he's the one who seeks the face of the Lord. Then he sets out to make things right. Now before we, before we move on to see how David makes atonement, I want us just to pause and to marvel at the mercy that God shows to David in revealing this guilt. God is kind to respond to David when he seeks the face of the Lord. God does not leave David in the dark. God is not cruel. He doesn't make David fret over what might be the cause of this famine. He mercifully reveals where the guilt is to be found. And so by revealing guilt, God was opening the door for atonement to be made. And so, um, when, you, when you read the rest of Scripture and you think about how clearly God reveals our guilt, God is not out to just lower our self-esteem. Because ultimately what we need is not higher self-esteem. What we need is forgiveness. We need reconciliation. It's no different than uh, a doctor who reveals a, a bad diagnosis. The doctor's job is not to make you feel like everything's okay if everything's not okay. His job is to say, here's what's wrong. And in revealing the diagnosis, he's opening the door for the possibility that a remedy, remedy might be found, that restoration and healing might be found. And that's what God is doing for David and for the people of Israel. He's saying, David, here is where the cancer is. Here is where the broken bone is. Here is where the guilt is. And by doing that, he's opening the door for atonement to be made. So we see the costliness of forgiveness first in the mercy of revealed guilt. Second, we see it in the messiness of applied justice. We see the costliness of forgiveness in the messiness of applied justice. So David has just gone to the Gibeonites and asked how he might make atonement. And they respond in verse 4. And... Think of these Gibeonites as kind of, they're, they're sort of beating around the bush. The Gibeonites said to him, this is verse 4, It's not a matter of silver or gold between us and Saul or his house. In other words, we don't want money. Financial restitution is not going to fix this. Neither is it for us to put any man to death in Israel. In other words, we don't have jurisdiction to exact capital punishment. 
We, it's not our place to, to take anyone's life. David says to them at the end of verse 4, what do you say that I shall do for you? So get to the point, what, what do you want me to do? And their response in verse 5, they cut to the chase and they say, we want you to hand over seven of Saul's sons so that we might hang them before the Lord. And David's response at the end of verse 6 is, I will give them. So they ask for seven of Saul's sons to be handed over so that they can put them to death, and David agrees with them. Now, some people read that and they, they say, that sounds wrong. That sounds unjust. Why should Saul's sons die for a sin they did not commit? Saul is the one who sinned. In fact, Deuteronomy 24.16 says, Children shall not be put to death because of their fathers. Each one shall be put to death for his own sin. So the principle in Deuteronomy was, justice should only be dealt against the person who actually sinned. The first time I was reading through this passage, my instinct was to think, this is wrong. This is wrong and unjust for the Gibeonites to ask David to hand over these sons, and it's wrong and unjust for David to do it. But then I read more carefully and thought about it more carefully, and I'm now convinced that what they did was the right thing to do, and I want to show you why. I could point to, a, I could point to several reasons why I became convinced that this was just, but I'll cut straight to the most significant one. Look at what God says at the end of verse 1. And the Lord said, There is blood guilt on Saul and on his house, because he put the Gibeonites to death. Now we could talk about how Saul, when he sinned, he was not simply acting as an individual, but as a representative of the entire nation, and so his sin incurred more than personal guilt. We could talk about how Saul's sin dishonored the Lord's reputation. He, he broke an oath that the nation had sworn by the Lord, and thus he brought a divine curse even on his descendants. But this is the most clear-cut way of looking at it. God says, Saul put the Gibeonites to death. His sons didn't do it. No one else did it but Saul. And for that reason, there is blood guilt on Saul and on his house, meaning his descendants. And so, so the simplest way I could put that is, if you read that and you think, that seems unjust for David to hand over Saul's sons to the Gibeonites, then what you're also saying is, what God said was unjust. I certainly don't think that any of us want to charge the Lord with injustice. And so I have a difficult time understanding that. I have a difficult time wrapping my mind around it, but I accept it because it's what God says. He says, there is blood guilt on Saul and on his house because he put the Gibeonites to death. So it's, it's helpful to notice here how messy things get when justice has to be applied. It's another way of showing us how costly forgiveness is. Saul is no longer alive, yet the consequences for one of his sins is still uh, on the nation of Israel. And so something has to be done. The only way for this sin to be atoned for is if the wrath falls on someone else because Saul is dead. And so God says that the guilt falls on his house, on his descendants, and that's precisely what happens. 
So we see the costliness of forgiveness in the mercy of revealed guilt, in the messiness of applied justice. Third, we see it in the security of covenant faithfulness. We see the costliness of forgiveness in the security of covenant faithfulness. So this famine was caused by Saul breaking a covenant. We're going to see how exactly it played out that this sin was atoned for. But before we get there, we sort of make a pit stop in verse 7, and we see David keeping a covenant. Saul broke a covenant. David keeps a covenant, a covenant that he made with Saul's son, Jonathan. So back in 1 Samuel, before Jonathan died, Jonathan and David were friends. Jonathan protected David on several occasions from his father, Saul. And the last time they saw each other before they were separated, they swore an oath to one another in the name of the Lord. And this is what they swore to one another. The Lord shall be between me and you and between my offspring and your offspring forever. They knew one of us is going to die. Either Saul is going to succeed and kill David or uh, Jonathan is going to die in some kind of battle. It turns out that's what happens. So they made a covenant that the Lord's going to be between us and also between our offspring. So if one of us dies, we're going to remain faithful even to his sons, his children. That covenant is what keeps Mephibosheth safe in 2 Samuel 21. David spares Jonathan's son because, verse 7, because of the oath of the Lord that was between them, between David and Jonathan the son of Saul. So here in the midst of an otherwise sad story, there's a picture of security because of a covenant promise. One way you could think of Mephibosheth is Mephibosheth is like one of Noah's sons. You're familiar with the story of Noah. Noah is the guy who was righteous. God was fed up with the continued sin of the world, and so he was going to judge the world with a flood. And he told this one man, Noah, to build an ark. And everyone who was inside that ark was safe. And so Noah's sons were safe because of their relationship to the one with whom God had made the covenant. In the midst of the ark, they were safe despite the raging flood outside, despite the death that was taking place outside the ark. David's covenant with Jonathan is like an ark of security and safety for Mephibosheth. It wraps him in safety. And in that sense, David's covenant faithfulness points us to Jesus. Because everyone who is in Christ is safe within that ark of covenant faithfulness. It was Jesus who said in John 6, This is the will of Him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that He has given me. And in John 10, My sheep hear my voice. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. If you are in Christ, you are secure because of His committed faithfulness. If you're in Christ, you are like Mephibosheth. Though everything else around you be chaos and death, you are eternally secure. So we've seen the costliness of forgiveness in the mercy of revealed guilt and the messiness of applied justice in the security of covenant faithfulness. And fourth, we see it in the horror of atoning death. 
we see the costliness of forgiveness in the horror of atoning death. The scene that unfolds next is gruesome and saddening. Seven of Saul's descendants are handed over and hanged. And the word in Hebrew where it says that they were hanged is a little bit ambiguous. It could mean that they were um, hanged by the neck from a tree. More likely it means something like they were impaled on some kind of stake. It's an ugly picture. Um, Saul's concubine, Rizpah, sits with these seven descendants of Saul. She cares for them. She protects their bodies from birds and animals that would feast on their carcasses. I was thinking about that picture of Rizpah sitting there caring for these dead bodies and thinking her, her love and care only heightens the sense of loss over these sons. They, they are not simply discarded, but they are loved and cared for even to the point uh, of their burial. When I said at the beginning that this story is sad, this is the scene I was thinking of. If you find it unsettling to think about this woman sitting with these dead bodies caring for them, you have understood the story rightly. If we try to imagine this scene, it is gory and ugly, and it's a picture of the ugliness of sin and of the costliness of atonement. The horror of this scene points us to the horror of Calvary. What happened at Calvary was not clean or tidy or sterile. It was ugly. It was horrific. And we would do well to sit for a while like Rizpah and ponder the horror of atoning death and to mourn over what it costs for our sin to be forgiven. The sadness at Gibeah foreshadows the sadness of Golgotha. It was there that God Himself bore the cost of reconciling us to Himself. God's solution for our sin was not to ignore it or to downplay it. In Christ, He became our sin and bore His own holy wrath against it. So our forgiveness was costly. And God also commands us to forgive one another in the same way. Colossians 3.13 as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. Ephesians 4.32, Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. So when you think about the costliness, the ugliness, the gore, and the horror that was involved in God forgiving us, that is the picture of what God says should be our example for how we forgive one another. It's going to be costly. It's going to be painful. It's going to be messy. So what does it mean for us to forgive as God in Christ forgave us? What does it mean for us to forgive as the Lord has forgiven us? I came across uh, an, a, 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 what I think is a really thorough answer to that question from a Puritan preacher named Thomas Watson about 350 years ago. He asked the question, when do we forgive others? And this was the answer he gave. We forgive others when we strive against all thoughts of revenge, when we will not do our enemies mischief, but wish well to them, grieve at their calamities, pray for them, seek reconciliation with them, 
and show ourselves ready on all occasions to relieve them. I want to break that down briefly because there's a lot going on there and I don't expect you to sort of pick up on, on everything just by hearing me read it. So I want to break that down and us to really meditate on this. Forgiveness means that we, first, that we resist thoughts of revenge and we refuse to repay evil for evil. I'm, I've given you a, uh, a scripture reference for each of these. I would encourage you to write them down and go and read them sometime this week. Forgiveness is always costly to the person who forgives. It means that we refuse to make the other person pay for what they did. We sometimes use that language of, I'm going to make them pay. And what, what God says in His Word is, do not repay evil for evil. Um, so forgiveness means we refuse to wrong someone even though they wronged us. We resist even the thought of revenge. So even, even the thought of, okay, I'm not going to do it, but you know, here's what I would like to do. Re forgiveness means we resist even the thought of it. God commands us in Romans 12, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink, for by so doing you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. What Paul's saying in Romans 12 is God is going to sort everything out in the end. God knows everything. He, he is perfectly just. And so there's coming a day when God is going to sort out every account. And so God does not need you to help Him sort out any accounts right now. Leave it to Him. To the contrary, if you see your enemy, if you see someone who's wronged you and they're hungry, feed him. If you see someone who's wronged you and they're thirsty, give him something to drink. Do not overcome evil, excuse me, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So forgiveness means resisting thoughts of revenge, refuse, refusing to repay evil for evil. Forgiveness also means that we wish them well and that we grieve at their calamities. I love that. Proverbs 24, 17 says, Do not rejoice when your enemy falls. And let not your heart be glad when he stumbles. That's a sobering warning because I could imagine us saying to ourselves, and maybe you've said this to yourself at some point, I'm not going to repay evil for evil. I'm not going to do anything wrong to them. I'm going to try to be the bigger person. But if something bad happens to them, I'm not going to cry about it. I'm not going to be sad about it. I might even sort of kind of chuckle and say, ha, 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 they got what they wanted. God says that is falling short of true wisdom. And that's falling short of genuine forgiveness, if that's your attitude. Genuine forgiveness means that you wish someone well, even though they've wronged you. That you say, this person wronged me, and I hope that something good happens to them. And when something bad happens to them, I'm not going to rejoice. I'm not going to let my heart be glad when they stumble. So, so here's a good sort of diagnostic question you could ask yourself. If someone has wronged you, what is your inclination? What's the first thought that comes to your mind when you hear about something good that's happened to them? Is it to sort of be upset that something good happened to them? What about if someone wronged you and then you hear that something bad happened to them? Do you sort of, is your instinct to say, hmm, 
Well, they got what they deserve. If that's your instinct, you haven't truly forgiven that, forgiven that person yet. You have not yet exercised genuine forgiveness. Last, forgiveness means that we pray for them, that we seek reconciliation with them, and that we be always ready to help them. <clears throat> pray for them, seek reconciliation with them, and be always ready to help them. Now, there are some important clarifications here. Um, the word seeking is important. It's it means that reconciliation may not always be possible. It may not always happen. Romans 12, 18 says, If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. So you may can think of some situation in, in your life that's happened where you say, you know what, there was some kind of conflict, someone wronged someone, and I've done my due diligence to go to that person to ask forgiveness where I need to ask forgiveness, perhaps to, to seek their repentance if they're the ones who were in the wrong. I've, I've fulfilled what Matthew 18 says, which is if your brother sins against you, go to him. Don't go and talk to other people. Go to him. Tell him what he's done wrong. But what Paul says there is, if possible so far as it depends on you. So full restoration depends on two parties. There has to be forgiveness extended, but there also has to be genuine repentance. You can only do what depends on you. The point is, there has to be a willingness on your part to forgive. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Even if someone may be genuinely repentant, Forgiveness does not always mean that your relationship with that person can return to, quote, normal, especially if there was some kind of abuse or manipulation or sustained deception. So we could imagine a situation where, say, there was a, a husband who was abusing his wife or something along those lines. That wife needs to forgive him, but it may be unwise for her to continue living in the same house as him. Um, Thomas Watson, the one who I... We read you that quote from a moment ago. He also said in that same uh, book, we are not bound to trust an enemy, but we are bound to forgive him. <clears throat> We're not bound to trust an enemy, but we are bound to forgive him. So it's possible genuinely to forgive someone in your heart, but without trusting them. It may be that because of their lying, because of their deceitfulness, because of manipulation, if they come to you and say, I'm sorry, you may not really be able to trust that they're genuinely sorry. And so a lack of trust may mean that returning to a normal relationship is impossible. In fact, it may be unwise to trust someone if they have proven to be deceitful or manipulative or abusive. The point is, your basic heart attitude is crucial. The question is, is there a willingness on your part to forgive? Is there a willingness to give the benefit of the doubt? Is there a willingness to seek reconciliation? Is there a willingness even to be always ready to help them? Because forgiveness is costly, forgiving someone who has wronged you may be one of the most difficult things you ever do in your life. It is. It's tricky. It's confusing. We're not always sure of our motives. 
We may not always be sure what the wisest thing to do is, and so we desperately need the Holy Spirit of God to give us wisdom and to help us obey. We could dive further and further into the specifics of forgiveness. We could come up with all kinds of case studies. I would encourage you to do that. In fact, uh, next Sunday morning in our uh, adult and youth Sunday school classes, uh, when they sort of take some time and, uh, and reflect on the sermon from the past week, this will be a good opportunity to maybe think of some examples of what's the wise thing to do in these different situations. I want to just encourage you, if you, if you ever uh, want to talk to me about anything in particular, I'd love to try to help you think biblically about a certain situation in your own life. So I'm, I'm trying to um, give us the 30,000 feet view of forgiveness here. But we do need to also, maybe in smaller ways, uh, get down to the particulars. I want us just to, here at the end, to take a step back and to ask ourselves two bigger picture questions, which are, am I forgiven and am I forgiving? Am I forgiven? Am I forgiving? Jesus says that the answer to those two questions are related. If you are not a forgiving person, if you harbor grudges and resentment or downright hostility towards someone, then it may be that you've never truly been forgiven. Jesus says in Matthew 6, 15, If you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. I'd also encourage you to go and read Matthew 18 where um, Jesus gives His disciples instructions about what they're to do when their brother sins against them. To go to Him if He refuses to repent, take two or three witnesses. If He still refuses to repent, take it to the church. Then Peter asked that famous question, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother? Seven times? And uh, Jesus, in, in response to that, tells them a parable about an unforgiving servant. A servant who was forgiven a massive debt that he never could have paid back. And then he goes out and refuses to forgive a very small debt. And Jesus' point is, if you are not forgiving, then you haven't truly understood forgiveness yet. That does not mean that we somehow earn forgiveness by our forgiving one another. It means that if we do not forgive others, we reveal that we've never truly experienced the forgiveness that God extends to us in Christ. So, are you forgiven? One way you could assess the answer to that question is, are you forgiving? So perhaps right now, you need to leave today and you need to go and seek reconciliation with someone this very day. There's no guarantee that it will happen because it depends on two parties. But I, I just want to urge us to, to take to heart the costliness of forgiveness. It, it's, it's costly, it's difficult, but it's always worth it. And forgiveness, when it truly happens, it displays in word and deed the grace of God in Christ to us. We're going to sing a hymn of invitation in just a moment. This is our opportunity to respond to God's Word. And I, I want to just pray for us that the Holy Spirit would convict us of sin and would give us wisdom and power to obey what He has commanded to do. The promise of God's Word is that He will never command us to do something that He won't equip us to do. And so when we talk about how difficult and costly forgiveness is, I'm not, I'm not giving you something impossible to do. I'm giving you something that's only possible to do in the power of the Holy Spirit.
And you can only have the power of the Holy Spirit if you've truly been forgiven and if you're truly in Christ. Let me pray for us. Lord, we thank you for your word. God, how you challenge us. I thank you, Lord, that just as David sought the face of the Lord and you revealed guilt to him, I pray right now in this moment that each of us individually would seek your face and that by your Spirit you would reveal to us if there is something that we need to do this very day to seek reconciliation with someone so that we might be restored to you. God, um, we see in your word how our relationships with others impact our relationship with you, our fellowship with you. And so, God, I pray for those of us in this room that we would not allow uh, any barrier to be between us and one another so that we will have clear communication and fellowship with you. God, help us. Help us to seek your face. Help us to take seriously what you've commanded us to do in your word and help us to pursue the power of your Holy Spirit to do what you've commanded us to do. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing.